welcome back, Calm listeners. This is Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Cal, we've brought in a really awesome guest today. Everyone listening, please welcome Julian Klimachko. Julian, how's it going? Hey, John. Hey, Cal. I am great. How are you guys this morning? Pretty good. A little bit of rain, nothing to complain about. Cal's always got sunny weather. Julian, thanks for joining us. What gets you excited about life? Well, I'm very involved in the capital markets. That is something that's always on my mind 24 7, 365. And what makes working in the capital market so interesting is every day there's something going on, right? No day is alike. There's whether it's new deals, market movement, macro drama. There's always information overload, so much to do that you got to focus your time. And there's not a lot of other areas in life where it's just so overwhelming that there's too much out there. And you really got to kind of focus on your area of specialty, just because there's basically an unlimited amount of data and things to do on any given day. And every day is completely different. So there's a lot that is unexpected and that makes it exciting whether it's positive or negative but it's a very fast-paced you know career if you're in it or just to be involved in the capital markets it's always exciting and so that is something that is always on my mind yeah it's a really cool career path and off the air we're just chatting you're from winnipeg which is really cool how did you go all the way from winnipeg to the capital markets what was your journey like yeah, so it's an interesting journey because, you know, being from a small city in the prairies, it's not exactly Manhattan or Chicago where I would get any exposure. So never had exposure to stocks or capital markets or anything growing up. So I didn't really know much about it at all until university. I started out getting a degree in engineering and then I had the opportunity to get a minor in business as well. And I'm like, sure, I'll give that a shot. I haven't really had any exposure to business, but I would say around 20 years old. Then I took my first business class and it was corporate finance. And you know, I effectively said after the first class, I'm like, oh, this is it. This was here all along. I just didn't know about it, but this is what I want to do. I just knew it immediately. And so I sort of fell in love with finance and the markets and I really started getting into it at that point and ended up getting a degree in finance as well. And from that, I was lucky enough to have investment banking recruiting at my university. It certainly was not a target, like there's some much larger and more expensive Canadian universities, whether it's Western or Queens or University of Toronto, those are really like kind of target schools. But I was lucky enough that all the big Canadian investment banks recruited from my university as well. So I was one of the lucky, I think there are three of us from university that got hired into one of the big Canadian investment banks. And I was lucky enough to be one of them. And so I got hired on with an investment banking division of one of the Canadian banks and moved out to Calgary to focus on energy coverage. So mostly M&A and equity offerings. 
So being an investment banking analyst, working those 90 hours per week, work weeks, and really just started the career somewhere that was fast paced and you learn a lot and you just get fully immersed in the financial markets. And that was sort of in the mid 2000s. It was an interesting time because it started out in like a bull market, but then 2008 hit, which was kind of like a generational bear market. So it was interesting to learn those lessons early on in my career before I had like a ton of money to lose, but it was certainly formative in terms of learning. This is what happens in a bull market. Oh, this is what happens in a bear market or a really nasty bear market accompanied with like the worst recession in 90 years. So those were great places to learn. You know, it's something that I'd want early in my career, not later, because now it definitely helps with risk management, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I can definitely understand that aspect. I finished university myself around 2009. So I studied accounting and finance. And I actually just like you, I preferred the finance aspect of it. I minored in finance, really. So I always wanted to get into an investment position or into a bank specifically. And I was able to have any luck with that coming out of university, which actually led me to trying to find a job and one thing led to another and got into automotive. And that's how I met John. But I understand the sense that for those who have friends who worked in banks, and they did say that being able to work during that time, whether they were older than me and they went through the recession of 08 and 09, that their market, it was quite the experience for them. So it's not something that you see every day, but it was an experience that you learn a lot for those who are able to still hang around and have jobs during those times. It's definitely quite the advantage. Yeah, and you got to be in the midst of the action in a really formative market because you don't learn nearly as many lessons when you're making money in a bull market as you learn when you're losing money in a bear market, right? And so it really helps on risk management and leverage and cycles and all these different aspects that investors really need to be cognizant of, especially ever since the COVID recovery, there's been a ton of, I'd say it's a risk on environment, lack of concern for downside and risk management and things of that nature. So going through those episodes, it's painful, but it helped investors and there's no better way to learn it than being fully immersed in it. Yeah, totally. We've talked about it before, the whole money printing. I think I heard a stat that it was like 20% of US monetary supply was printed or something crazy. So what do you think the long-term effects are going to be? Is that sustainable? And where does the next 12 months look like? Well, with central banks, like the Fed targeting 2% inflation rate, what that indicates is that in a generation, the dollar will lose 95% of its purchasing power. And money printing just supports that and perhaps hastens that decline. So, you know, in my opinion, just that leads to inflation, but there's nothing abnormal about inflation. Like the central banks and economists and basically everyone in the market assumes that 2% per year is normal. But when you compound that, it turns out to be a great deal over a lifetime. <laughs> so that's something to consider. And especially coming out of COVID, not just with money printing, but the easiest monetary policies in history. If you look at not just the fiscal stimulus and quantitative easing, but record low interest rates, which have encouraged 
risk-taking behavior on behalf of market participants in pursuit of riskier and riskier asset classes and more and more leverage. I think those monetary policies being like the easiest on record when valuations are hitting all-time highs and equities and bond yields hitting record lows. That's obviously concerning, but it's been happening for a while already. So many have been sort of eased into the expectation that if anything bad happens, the Fed will just bail out market participants, which has obviously worked over the past, call it 12 years, we went through COVID, which had the potential to be a real nasty bear market. I mean, that was not fun. But that only lasted a very brief period of time just because the response from governments and central banks was so powerful. So to answer your question, I think like nothing is necessarily free in terms of, oh, they can print as much money as they want and there won't be any negative downsides to it. I don't think the MMT or modern monetary theory comes with no risk or no downside. I think the major risk is inflation that is problematic. And that has certainly happened many times in the past. For example, one would be the 1970s and stagflation where both stocks and bonds did poorly for a number of years. So that's something to consider because in an environment like that, commodities and gold did great. And that's why I'm a big advocate of diversification. Yeah, I can definitely see that risk on mentality coming onto the markets and the challenges a lot of new participants have joined since COVID because of it. It shows a lot of strength in the market. People are chasing yields and trying to get into basically what stocks would be more of the riskier securities that you can get into and trying to get as much as you can and grow your capital, especially with negative real rates of return on the 10-year of treasury. So it has definitely still for those new participants that have been in the market for a year or less are seeing, you know, a market that they think is always going to be the case. I'm sure like all of us who are active in the markets didn't see as much of a pullback as we normally would expect, I would say. Obviously, at the time of this recording, we've seen something more of a retracement, I would say, nothing major, but there are concerns with the Delta and the debt ceiling, and that has been apparently lifted. So that is, as of today, seems like the markets are responding positively to it. But again, it's showing that risk on mentality, which also makes me wonder when you say about diversification, I did notice on your Twitter page that the background image says the Accelerate Carbon Negative Bitcoin ETF. So I'm assuming you have an opinion there when it comes to crypto, and I'd like if you can share that with us. Yeah, for sure. And so recently launched the Accelerate Carbon Negative Bitcoin ETF, which trades under the symbol ABTC on the Toronto Stock Exchange. So it represents a way to get exposure to Bitcoin in an eco-friendly way. So we're super excited about that. I can talk about the mechanics, but first the thesis on Bitcoin, I've been, call it the past four and a half years. For example, in 2017, back when Bitcoin was around 2000, I launched Canada's first cryptocurrency investment fund. And so we've been focused on Bitcoin ever since. And obviously with it being north of $50,000, it was a great thesis, but it's still nowhere near my long-term price target. So we are still constructive on Bitcoin as an allocation within portfolios. And I take this view from mostly influence from a quantitative perspective. And so I'm a big proponent of asset allocation. 
what asset allocation entails is evaluating each investment or asset within a portfolio from a portfolio basis and not necessarily individual basis. And when you do that, one key tenant of investing that should be known is the concept of diversification. Now, they say diversification is the only free lunch in investing. And I agree with that. Diversification is a great thing, but the crux of diversification is low or negative correlation. For example, there's no point in holding a ton of highly correlated assets within a portfolio because that doesn't provide diversification benefit because the returns are driven by the same economic drivers. Like if you own 20 oil stocks in your portfolio and that's your portfolio or 20 cryptocurrencies in your portfolio and that's your portfolio, that is not diversified because they're all effectively the same asset, right? And so when you're looking to set up a diversified portfolio and an asset allocation framework, you want to look for assets that move differently, get driven by different economic drivers and result in a return stream that are unrelated or uncorrelated. And that's where Bitcoin comes in. Of all the various asset classes, Bitcoin has one of the lowest correlations to traditional asset classes being stocks and bonds. So from diversification benefit, it's tough to beat Bitcoin from a portfolio allocation perspective. And number two, from a performance perspective, Bitcoin is the best performing asset over the past decade, both on an absolute and risk-adjusted basis. It's highly volatile. Volatility is north of 80% annualized. But even so, on a risk-adjusted basis, if you look at the return per unit of risk or the Sharpe ratio, it still crushes basically all other asset classes. So from a purely quantitative perspective, it's extremely difficult to argue against incorporating Bitcoin into a portfolio. Then, you know, on a go-forward basis, the fundamental thesis is that it's a store of value. That's how I view Bitcoin. It's limited in supply and it's valued by the market. And the vast majority of Bitcoin is held by market participants that I believe won't sell at any price. You have the difficulty steadily increasing, which basically increases the cost of producing more Bitcoin, which I believe will drive the price up over time. And the supply-demand dynamic where the supply is actually, or call it the tradable float, is shrinking over time. Whether it's just people buying and holding and never selling, or Bitcoin getting lost, stolen, things of that nature. And demand increasing, I believe we're in the early stages of institutional adoption. Economics 101 indicates when demand exceeds supply, the price will increase. So long-term, I am still constructive on the price. I advise many investors, if appropriate, to have at least a you know 1% portfolio allocation of Bitcoin given its quantitative properties and upside potential. But you know, it's a tough asset to own in size because it is so incredibly volatile. You'll go through multiple bear markets every year, probably suffer some 80% plus drawdowns. You know, you gotta be able to hold through those just so you don't end up selling at the bottom. And you want to be able to capitalize on the long-term potential, hold through the big drawdowns, the big volatility. And the way to do that is through position sizing. Not saying no, if an asset is risky, the way that you deal with it is through risk management. And you do that by sizing the position appropriately.
Oh, I can get into ABTC and Accelerate Carbon Negative Bitcoin ETF. And to summarize that, like I said, I started the first Bitcoin fund in Canada back in the summer of 2017. when Bitcoin was kind of in the $2,000 range, obviously performed well. And then when I launched Accelerate a few years ago, we always wanted to have something in the crypto asset space, specifically Bitcoin, because I think that's the best crypto asset to hold, or kind of the main one that investors should consider allocating to. But what's happened over the past couple of years is that as the Bitcoin ecosystem grows, the price increases, the difficulty of the blockchain increases, more miners come into the market and Bitcoin mining becomes a bigger business, is that the Bitcoin ecosystem and the blockchain has become much more energy intensive. And with that, uh, it requires significantly more power to power all the Bitcoin miners. And with that comes carbon emissions. It's estimated that nearly 60% of Bitcoin miners utilize non-renewable resources or fossil fuels, which obviously produces carbon emissions, which are negative for the environment. So we took that into account. We really wanted to address that problem. We viewed the negative environmental effects as the biggest hurdle or roadblock to investors allocating to Bitcoin. We view Bitcoin as this kind of soon to be a default asset within the portfolios. But the last holdback was that negative environmental effect. So we created the Accelerate Carbon Negative Bitcoin ETF. And the way that we make it eco-friendly is that we spend up to 10% of our management fee on a decarbonization initiative, which consists of our global tree planting campaign. So we started out by planting mangrove trees in Madagascar in East Africa. It's cost-effective and mangroves sequester two to four times the carbon emissions of the average tree. And you know there's positive social benefits in terms of investing into East African providing jobs. So on the environmental side, we look at the emissions produced by ABTC, the ETFs, Bitcoin transactions. And the way the math works is basically $1,000 invested in ABTC will plant nearly 3.5 trees per year, which will result in one net ton of carbon sequestered per year, which is an estimate, versus the carbon emissions of the Bitcoin transactions. We believe that our decarbonization initiative will not only neutralize those carbon emissions, but take them deeply negative, i.e. our tree planting campaign, we expect will sequester over 60-fold the carbon emissions from the Bitcoin transactions of the ABTC ETF. That's awesome. Cal, there's your solution to environmental issues. You can go now invest. So Julian, a couple questions there. You touched on risk. You talked about how to measure risk. I think you had said sharp ratio. Can you talk a bit about how that's done for our listeners so they can understand that a little bit better? Right. So sharp ratio, you basically just take a look at two historical quantitative measures for illiquid assets. And on the top, the numerator is the annualized return. Obviously for Bitcoin, that's very high. I believe it's compounded you know, north of 100% annually over the past five years. So that's your numerator, the annualized return. Then on the bottom, the denominator is the annualized volatility of the asset. Bitcoin is north of 80%. So if we look at You know, I estimate the annualized return for Bitcoin over the past five years is 120% annualized and call the volatility 80%. That would give you a sharp ratio of 1.5, which is extremely high. That measures return per unit of risk. 
Now, I'm not saying risk is volatility, but it's really the best quantitative measure that we have for this type of analysis. So the Sharpe ratio or return per unit of risk for Bitcoin in this example would be 1.5. And if we compare that historically to, say, the S&P 500, I believe historically has had a Sharpe ratio of 0.15 or 0.2 around that range. There's no denying that someone should have some exposure, I think, especially if you're a new investor, someone who doesn't have quote unquote old money, or especially if you're not growing up affluent. I do encourage people to try and jump in on it as we get into things like Web3, NFTs, we see the space growing. You've covered it for a while, Julian. I'm sure there's a lot of semblances to the internet in the early days and 25 years later, you know, these crazy valuations in the Amazons, the Facebooks and Instagrams and all that kind of stuff. But the use case and the technology does get proven out. Sometimes it does take a while. So a lot of people, I think Naval said, we're both too early and too late, meaning there's still a lot to go. So don't feel bad. I did have a question for you. So what do you tell someone who's 20 years old, let's say in college, in university, who has $100 to their name or less because they've got student debt? When you look at things like the cost of education, cost of housing, life is expensive. What do you tell someone like that? Especially when you mention things like diversification. As a follow-up, I'm curious, does diversification make sense at a certain threshold? You know, $10,000, $100,000, or maybe in the single multiple millions. Should everyone diversify is my question. So obviously with investing, table stakes is capital. And so number one, that's obviously tough as a student, but as you start working and, you know, I encourage people to save just to get that initial amount of capital, the table stakes it requires to start investing. And the best way to learn is to do it, right? You can read all the books, but ultimately it's like basketball. If you just read books on basketball, you're not going to become like a superstar. You actually have to play in practice. And it's the same thing with markets. Investing is no different in that you learn by doing. So I encourage people to, you know, save a bit of money if possible and get into the markets. But also one of the major risks that I see or one of the major mistakes is on the risk and lack of diversification. Oh, and lack of patience. I mean, investing, you got to take from the time frame of call it 30 to 50 year journey, right? You shouldn't be trying to double your money overnight. And I see that, you know, risk taking attitude from early investors while well, they'll be like, I'm long a bunch of call options and that's my portfolio. I'm long a GameStop 100% and that's all I own. It's like, well, you're likely going to blow up at some point and your account's going to go to zero and you can't recover from that, right? You got to start all over. So you really have to take risk management into account and don't do these you know, highly concentrated or highly levered plays just because it's insanity. Like occasionally it works out for one person, but vast majority of the time it's disastrous and they take large losses. So I think risk management and diversification, but the thing about being young and it'll be small amounts of money. So never risk more than you can lose. That's really the number one rule. That rule is probably the best thing I've learned investing as well, along with if you feel nervous about a position, you just got into it too much money. So it actually would lead me to the next question. It seems that this year there's quite a lot of stir and interest, let's say, in SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies, including myself, actually. So, you know, you're known as a SPAC king. We'd love if you can share with us more about that. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. as a class that has emerged over, say, the past 15 months as a new asset class, just because if we go back to last spring, just coming out of COVID, SPACs were roughly $20 billion in total. There are about 90 of them. Now there is a ton. There's like hundreds and hundreds of SPACs. They are nearly a $200 billion asset class. So still small. I mean, Bitcoin is like a trillion and SPACs are $200 billion. So the SPAC market has grown almost tenfold over the past year and a half. However, they're still you know, relatively small. There's almost 600 of them in the market, up from less than 100 last spring. And they've become much more prevalent into the market. And I think one of the major appeals to them, number one is, over the past two decades, you saw a dramatic decline in the number of publicly listed securities in the U.S. market. Basically went from 10,000 down to 4,000, which obviously is a negative thing. I mean, investors should have more choice than less. So that decline in public listings is a negative. And counterbalancing that was the rise of private markets. So been a huge rush of flooded capital into the private markets, supported by institutional investors investing in private equity and venture capital. So with that, startups and growth companies have been staying private longer because we rewind to, say, the 90s, where you could invest in Amazon's IPO when they're still like a relatively new company, or go back even further to the Microsoft or Apple IPOs. They were still like quite early stage and had a ton of growth left. But more recent IPOs, for example, Uber, basically all the growth was harvested by the private market investors. And then when it goes public, that's basically private market investors saying, no growth left. We're just going to dump it to public market investors as a sort of mature asset. And combine that with misconception that issuers had with what market participants wanted. So the misconception is that public markets wanted mature, stable companies that produce consistent revenue and profits quarter after quarter and sort of make those numbers. However, what SPACs have proven is that there's this voracious appetite for earlier stage investments. And that's really become the purpose of the SPAC is to provide investors exposure to more Series C or Series D type venture capital opportunities, where some of the companies going public by SPAC are not only pre-profit, but also pre-revenue. So it gives exposure to those early stage growth opportunities that were lacking in the public markets for a long, long time. SPACs have reversed the trend, the declining number of publicly traded issuers in the market, which anyone can say that is a positive benefit to everyone. Whether you're bullish or bearish, I mean, if you're bearish, that just gives you more quantity to short, right? More selection to short. And, you know, if you're a long-only investor, it gives you more selection to go long. So I think that's a pretty phenomenal thing and gives exposure to sectors that you never had exposure to before. Electric vehicle, charging, space infrastructure, satellites, rockets, all these different sectors that are now emerging basically only via SPAC. So it's kind of a true democratization of early stage growth companies and those venture capital type opportunities, which only used to be available to wealthy people and institutional investors, but the SPAC opened it up to everyone, where you can actually get, especially currently, you can get great deals in the market. 
a tremendous amount are at discounts to net asset value or trust value. So you can get in cheap and these SPAC trades are a phenomenal risk reward in the current market environment just because the vast majority are trading at a discount to their net asset value, leading to great risk reward dynamics for investors. Yeah. So you had mentioned, you know, like a series C and D for bringing a company to market through a trust. And I guess the traditional investing, investors want to return, so they're not going to waste their time with like two guys out of a garage in a small business. But is there like a floor for SPACs to get legally merged with a company? If I have a bag of money, can I just list myself on the market? Can I go like in the angel stage or like in the seed stage? Can you take a company public at that level? Yeah, so typically it's like a minimum company value to go public via SPAC. So the rule of thumb is that a SPAC would target a private company that's worth roughly three to five times their trust value. So if you have, call it a $200 million SPAC with $200 million in trust, you would target companies that are worth $600 million to a $1 billion in terms of enterprise value. It's not a rule, but it's like more of a rule of thumb where these deals shake out doesn't have to be like that. The smallest SPACs that we see are 40 million. I don't think we'd ever see enterprise value below 100 million. I mean, we occasionally do. For example, I saw one that closed recently that had an $85 million enterprise value, but I believe that may have been the smallest one in recent history. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. And why I bring that up, if you've heard of some platforms like angel list and you know the sec kind of modifying the regulation around investing so the trope is hey you can go gamble but you can't invest in private companies so if you become accredited through a course does that open the opportunity for private investing but then do you have the right contacts are you going to get a piece is the debate i suppose so do you think there's opportunity to go i don't know sub 85 million and then also crowdsource a trust with $100 from a bunch of people online, can we see some innovation that way? And do you think that would ever become legal or meaningful? And I'm not saying more is better. You don't want 100,000 investors necessarily, but managing a bunch of money. But is there like a blind spot or an area of opportunity there as we evolve into retail investors getting in and all these new forms of investing? Yeah. So in Canada, there's a program called the Capital Pool company program. It's on the TSX Venture. And so they're considered mini SPACs. They're significantly smaller than the average SPAC. For example, I launched one in 2018. It's called Red River Capital. We did a $300,000 IPO. That was the amount of money that we raised. And we did a business combination with a company called Bitcoin Well at a $14 million valuation. Now it's up in trading. I remain shareholder and chairman of the company, and it's got a market cap of roughly $40 million. So those opportunities are available on the TSX Venture, where you're getting smaller, even earlier stage companies than SPACs, which are popular in the US and trade on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. That's awesome. I had no clue. So I'm going to have to look up that and follow along. And how do you find a new company to invest in? Do you have an overarching investment thesis? Do you focus on certain sectors? We talked about diversification, Bitcoin. What other areas are exciting to you that are kind of nascent and developing? 
Yeah, so it really depends on what asset class you're targeting. For example, we have a fund called the Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF. Ticker symbol is ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange, and that follows a SPAC and merger arbitrage strategy. So every single SPAC that gets announced, and now I come through Edgar, which is the SEC's filing website. That's probably my most visited website of all time because I'm always on there, <laughs> always doing research, and obviously follow every M&A deal in North America as well and model them out pretty significantly. So we have models that go back 10 plus years tracking all these things. So that's number one on the arbitrage side, mergers and SPACs. You know, we do some stuff in long short that's quantitatively driven. So we're basically running quantitative models to run a systematic process. And then I always have my eyes out for new asset classes, whether it's you know crypto assets. I think one that seems to be emerging just this year is NFTs. I'm certainly no expert in NFTs, but I've dabbled a little and I'm excited to see where those go and other asset classes that capitalize on blockchain technology. Yeah, we've covered NFTs a bit too. And it's interesting that you can tokenize something like a car or a house and you go to these super far out cases where something like that could be possible. It does sound like that's the future. And then there's no debate about ownership. The joke of Bitcoin is decentralized, but then you're essentially centralizing a methodology of assigning a serial number or ownership to something. So every local province or state has their own version of MTO or car insurance or things like that. So it is kind of interesting to see if that's the future. That's very cool that you model other M&As though. So you'll actually keep your finger on the pulse and do you essentially say, hey, if we did this, this is where we think the deal would go just to kind of make sure you're sharp. Is that the idea? The main idea is to invest in merger arbitrage opportunities for our ARB ETF. And so that's kind of the main thinking, but you know, it helps to get that market knowledge in terms of, oh, here's where M&A multiples, transaction multiples are happening these days. So you have experience in that from an investor. And, and I started my career on the M&A advisory side. So I got an inside look into how deals happen. So yeah, I mean, it's very valuable in terms of market knowledge, but mostly do it on the investing side because merger arbitrage is a great way to generate yield in the current market environment. Right on. So speaking of M&A, if you're ever going to be sold or acquired, let's say you started a company, we had talked about that before. I guess it's so specific, but do you have any typical rules of thumb, as you said, for negotiating a good deal or non-negotiables or things to look out for if someone is ever in that position? Well, you never want to be in the position of a must-do deal. I think if you are always have the attitude that you can walk away, that is positive for negotiation because you never want to be desperate because you won't get good value whether you're selling or buying. So yeah, I think always be willing to walk away is sort of your number one consideration. And then something extremely important is valuation. So you want to be disciplined on the buying side and want to maximize it on the selling side. But whenever I'm selling an asset, I always have in mind, look, I'm going to leave something on the table for the next person because that's how you can establish a good track record is if you sell an asset and the next person does well, then they're going to want to do business with you as well others just because it's accretive to your reputation and you can't top tick everything and hope that the next person loses money because you sell at the best price. So I think that's another important rule is you don't need to squeeze out every penny, leave some upside, some money on the table for the person who's buying it from you. I think that will generate a lot of goodwill 
and will be more accretive over the long run. And then obviously reputational issues. I think Warren Buffett said takes a lifetime to build up a reputation in just five minutes to ruin it. And it's extremely important to keep that in mind because, you know, no matter how much you're going to make on any specific deal, it's never worth the price of your reputation. So that's paramount. I think taking that into account should be extremely important to always maintain integrity in all situations, just because that reputational capital is your most important aspect in this business. That's another thing to consider. And then just be mindful of cycles. Trees don't grow to the sky. Uh, I always see in bear markets, people think when it's bad, it will be bad forever. And in bull markets, when it's good, it'll be good forever. But the fact is that markets are highly cyclical. I'm not saying that people can predict them in any consistent sense. However, you know, when you are in a bear market, you can sort of get a sense and you build that skill over time. Like for example, in SPACs, yeah, we're in a bear market, it's a great time to allocate. And six months ago, we were in this crazy bull market and it was an awful time to allocate. So that's something to keep in mind and wanting to be somewhat counter-cyclical. I think you can do well over a career, but certainly not easy. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I hear a lot of long-term investors talk about, like you had mentioned, position size and bear markets and things like that. So do you have a philosophy on keeping capital on hand for these dips, for these markets when they go down and you can buy 30, 50 cents on the dollar? And then back to your diversification, do you believe there's a the right amount of cash to hold in your portfolio just for those kinds of instances? Yeah, so I don't do that personally because I think that problem is better resolved through diversification. People are overly focused on U.S. large cap growth equities, which are actually a relatively small portion of the global asset portfolio, specifically the S&P 500. People seem to think that's the only thing to invest in, and that's the market. And when it goes down, we're screwed. But the S&P 500 is a relatively small portion of the global asset portfolio. And there's other asset classes that move either negatively or independently. And I think those are better utilized than cash because cash, you're going to lose 2% at least of your purchasing power per year. And so cash has a negative expected real rate of return at the current moment. And, you know, it's tough to invest in something that promises you a negative expected real return. At least it is for myself. I know other people are fans of that, but not necessarily me. And so when you say, oh, the market's down and buy the dip with cash. Well, if you have a negatively correlated asset that goes up when, say, the S&P 500 goes down, that's even better. And so why not do that instead of cash with a negative expected real return? So I like investing in uncorrelated asset classes that can provide a positive expected real return that would be uncorrelated to, say, the equity markets. I think that's a better asset allocation framework. However, there are situations that warrant holding cash. For example, if you're saving money for a down payment on a home or something like that, or paying for college, like you absolutely need that money, you can't risk any sort of volatility. So in that sense, it makes sense to allocate to a low volatility asset such as cash, just because you know the money will be there when you need it. So it does have its uses, but me personally within an investment portfolio, I don't allocate to cash as an asset class. Yeah, that's actually very clever. It makes a lot of sense now that you mention it. Just don't hold cash for 50 years or else it's going to go to zero, right? So you talk about asset classes a lot. And you're a quantitative guy. Does someone keep track of how many asset classes are in the world? 
And do you try and tally into all of them? And how do you measure your exposure? You talked about correlation. Is there like a correlation percentage you like to have? Because it sounds like you have a very methodical approach to this. So I'm curious about that. Yeah, it really depends and comes down to how you define an asset class. In my opinion, that is total market capitalization of, say, $100 billion and something that's liquid that you can buy and sell, relatively liquid. So whether it's stocks, bonds, real estate, infrastructure, hedge funds, private equity, venture capital, crypto assets. And there are new asset classes being formed, such as NFTs just became an asset class this year. There's more exotic ones, whether they are, you know, other collectibles such as vintage automobiles, musical instruments, you know, artwork has probably been an asset class that is one of the oldest, if not the oldest. I'm not sure. It's debatable what came first as an asset class, gold or artwork. You know, those are some of the interesting ones. And yeah, that lack of correlation is something that is extremely important because that is the crux of diversification. I think an investor should aim to hold at least six asset classes that exhibit low correlation to one another. So I often see many investors make the error of owning just one or two, right? They'll have like a 100% stock portfolio and may own a home for the real estate, but really missing out on the diversification benefits of additional asset classes. And it's a moving target because thankfully there are new asset classes forming and growing all the time. Like one exciting one would be uh, NFTs. And that's officially an asset class as of this year, just because they've grown in size in terms of market capitalization and they've grown in liquidity. So that's something really cool. And who knows where those are going to go? Are they all going to go to zero? Is it going to go to trillions of dollars? I have no idea, but a lot of this is unknown. I mean, that's the thing with investing is there's a lot of unknowns and that's where diversification also helps. You can try to forecast, but more often than not, forecasts are generally wrong. Right on. So you solve the idea of timing the market by holding cash and waiting for your time to jump on the ride by diversifying. So does that mean with a really long time horizon, the right times all the time, I guess? So if you just learn about NFTs and it hits your asset class markers, which is, let's say, you know, a certain amount of $100 billion, for example, you'll just take a position. And can we just talk about position sizing? So dipping your toe, is that a thing in, let's say, a brand new asset class like that, you know, especially in like a frothy market where it's all over the news? How do you take your methodology of diversification and negative correlation? And then how do you pick a position size in a meaningful way? Yeah, so that's a great question from an asset allocation perspective. I'll start out with the problem that's common that I see people will be 100% equities and be like, oh, uh, you know, I think the market stretched. I'm going to sell everything. <laughs> and they're kind of switching between stocks and cash and thinking that they can dance in and out of the market. Like it's so binary. They're like, okay, I'm in stocks. I sold everything. I'm in cash. And that's nearly always a failing proposition over the long term. They're just going to do quite poorly because our human monkey brain doesn't deal with volatility well. People generally want to sell low and buy high just because of fear and greed, which drives everyone. So it's really important to not do that, right? And so you want to incorporate more asset classes, as we discussed, and diversify beyond just U.S. large cap growth equities. I mean, there's emerging markets, there are small caps, 
there's you know a ton of different types of equity exposure, but those will be somewhat correlated. However, there's a fixed income side and on the credit side, there's treasuries, there's corporate bonds, there's junk bonds, there's preferred shares, there's leveraged loans, and then real estate, infrastructure, and so many various asset classes. I think a great fixed income strategy in the current environment, as I indicated, is back arbitrage because you can generate great risk adjusted returns. But in terms of asset allocation, it's really no two portfolios will be the exact same. It really depends on everyone's personal situation. For example, if you work in the technology industry, yeah, that's where you specialize and that's where you have the most knowledge. However, your investment portfolio should be a bunch of tech companies, right? Like it should be none of the tech companies you should own bank stocks and you should own resource stocks and real estate and infrastructure and things of that nature because you already have this asset which is your own earning power that is highly correlated to the performance of the tech sector or for example if you work in finance and you own stocks you're just sort of like double leveraging yourself to that asset class because they have stocks do poorly or you know earning power might do poorly and so there's some correlation with respect to your career right so that's something to keep in mind there's something to keep in mind if you have ownership or you start a business that's probably the majority of your net worth many people have real estate as a majority of their net worth so it really depends on everyone's lifestyle taking that into account and diversifying beyond those major exposures and really keeping in mind additional asset classes so you don't necessarily have to own them all i just think it's smarter to own more than one especially one that is uncorrelated to your personal earning power related to your career and i think investors would do great if they allocated to say six asset classes for example you own a bunch of stocks you own some bonds say you own real estate through your house and then you own a little bit of bitcoin so you own some SPACs. and in addition to that maybe you're invested in some startup companies so i think an allocation like that can be interesting and it's all about like position sizing for it for me like cryptocurrency even if you're like a high risk investor i think you should always keep that exposure to within 10 percent of your portfolio when I see other people that specialize in very niche asset classes, I have a friend who's an expert in the watch market. So he's great at uh, investing in watches. And that's an asset class that requires a significant amount of expertise. I don't allocate to that asset class because I just don't have the knowledge required. Yeah, especially when it's a specialty thing like cars or watches, I find the mantra is always buy right and you sell right. So if you have the eye for a good deal, then you see it and you can instantly pull the trigger. Whereas if you're excited and just want to get in for the sake of it, and I think back to your point of if it's your only asset class, then yeah, that's where mistakes are made. And then, you know, you have to cut your losses or you get nervous. And I think a lot of people burn their hands on the fire and then never try. You know, by the sound of it, your whole career, you're an incredibly hard worker. 90 hour weeks is maybe not sustainable for most people, but it's very commendable that you have that drive. And, you know, if you want to talk about how to be successful investing long term, I think some of our topics that we talk about, like a side hustle or multiple incomes makes a lot of sense, because then you can take those streams and diversify. And it actually hedges against you losing your job or the market changing and how many people lose their pensions or get ill and can't work. So I think these are all interesting topics to think about. So thank you so much for sharing. And I guess as we wrap up here, when can we buy into the first Julian SPAC NFT ETF? <laughs> yeah, the uh, NFT market is 
something that uh, we're monitoring. I think it's super cool. It's a market that requires a lot of specialization. And I don't know if there's any you know professional NFT investors yet, just because the market's so nascent, but certainly there's people specializing in. So I think that it's a very dynamic place to be. There's a lot of uncertainty too, though. So I'm not sure if there's anything to do there. Aside from dabbling, and my purpose of dabbling is more so a learning exercise as opposed to looking to speculate and take big bets and make a lot of money. You know, it's just kind of small positions where I'm learning as we go and just keeping my eye on the pulse to see how it develops. It is exciting, and I'm looking forward to seeing how the NFT market develops in the future because I think there's a lot of potential. Yeah, totally. And, you know, from what I've examined, there's marketplaces, you've got your OpenSea. Soul C, you've got, I think it's foundation.app, for example. That one I like because there's a lot of individual artists doing handwritten style content. We talked about before, you could be living in South America and making two Ethereum on a drawing, which is very interesting because it unlocks new ways to exchange money and get paid for your time and what you're valued for. And it's a breakaway from the traditional society. And we've seen things like Twitch streaming and people making money online before, but now it's almost expected that there are ways. It's becoming, I don't want to use the term gold standard, but it is becoming standardized. The expectation is that you can sell and buy things and things like Kijiji or eBay, you slowly have things like PayPal letting you integrate traditional ways of buying things and moving money around, but now it's just becoming faster and there's all these new places. So yeah, the only thing I've heard that's a bit cautionary is that some of the big press releases on these $70 million sales, or it's very popular to sell a collection of things. So you've got like apes or like, you know, penguins and all these kinds of thousand characters, essentially Pokemon. People yeah. will hire an artist. And I don't know if this is true, but you'll see some people kind of finding a buyer who will buy a whole collection on purpose, spend $20 million yeah, just to trading. Yeah, just to hype it up. And then all of a sudden people will start FOMOing in because it's such a new space. And then all of a sudden, is it real value? I don't know. It's debatable. So I think you're smart in kind of watching the space, but who knows what the gold is? No one knew Amazon would be Amazon when it started. Right. Yeah, exactly. They just thought it was a bookseller. Yeah. And he was a famous story. He got like 58 no's out of 60. So, you know, I've heard of that too, which is if you're unsure about an investment, if it's too certain, you've probably missed it. So a lot of people say, just invest less, don't invest nothing. So are you of that belief where if it's, I guess you are, if you're investing in NFTs, so maybe position size, you'll dial it down, but you'll explore. You're very exploratory by my sense of this conversation. Yeah, exactly. If something seems interesting and you see the upside potential, then I think you should get involved in whatever amount of size that you can risk losing. Yeah. And how do you measure upside? Do you have a quantitative approach? You had talked about price targets. So I guess it's asset class specific, but will you avoid an investment if it won't give you a 10x or 100x or does it depend on the riskiness and position size? I'm curious about your methodology that way. What kind of multiples do you look for? And then do you eventually exit once you hit those targets? Yes, it's a great question. And I think that a portfolio that exclusively swings for the fences is highly inappropriate for everyone. <laughs> Diversification also includes various risk reward. You have some kind of low risk, low returning investments and 
high risk, high potential investments, and you have everything in between. And that's another essence of diversification. So for example, like, you know, one asset class that I do allocate to is arbitrage, SPACs and merger arbitrage. And my return expectation is sort of seven to 8% annualized in a low risk and consistent manner. That's what I'm looking for there. I'm also invested in, say, Bitcoin, where my return expectation is about 25% annualized with high risk, high volatility. And say, like, I own a small amount of NFTs and, you know, potential to 10x my money, but also go to zero, right? And so I size those appropriately in, you know, some other asset classes, whether it's just equities, which I think could do in the 5 to 10% annualized range, long short equity that could compound in the low to mid teens and real estate, which you can do well on a levered basis, call that a low double digit annualized return. So the important thing is to have multiple asset classes because at the end of the day, forecasts are the furthest thing from guaranteed and you ultimately never know what's going to work the best. A portfolio can also be viewed as a number of call options, right? And so call option is something that pays off where there's uncertainty and you know you want exposure to all these different call options. And even on your career, if you take a swing and be like, oh, I'm going to join the startup, you know, it has a good chance of failing, but you know, there's a small chance it could be extremely successful and then you're very wealthy, right? So it's really important to think of that optionality, the uncertainty, and how forecasting comes into play. I think that's a very good way to think about life, which is don't limit your possibilities. So people listening, whether it comes to strictly investing or taking opportunity in your own life, explore different things, try and learn new things. And I always say, be curious about the world for that reason, right? In the ever-evolving world, if you couple the idea of optimism with opportunity, I think really not that you fumble your way into things, but you will find things you will explore, you know, whether it's your passion or you want to become wealthy and own your own time. I think it's definitely possible. So awesome. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you sharing this hour with us. It's been amazing. Anything you want to plug personally, where can people find you? Yeah, so follow me on Twitter at Julian Klamachko. I'm fairly active on the Twitter side of things. You can visit our website, accelerateshares.com. I have my own podcast, Absolute Return Podcast. Check that out. And yeah, if you're interested in exposure to various alternative asset classes, you can check out accelerateshares.com. That's where we talk about our alternative ETFs. I mentioned a couple on the podcast today, ABTC, which is our carbon negative Bitcoin ETF, and ARB, which is our SPAC and merger arbitrage ETF. Awesome. Thanks so much, Julian. Loved having you on the show. You're welcome back anytime. And we look forward to staying in touch. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks, Cal. Have a great day. Thanks, Julian. Have a great one. So with that said, let's wrap up today's episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Thanks, everyone.